where could finance play a distinctive, incredibly important role in some of the biggest issues that we are facing. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Audrey Choi. She's the Chief Sustainability Officer of Morgan Stanley, and she'll talk about how finance can play a key role in addressing some of the biggest challenges of our time. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. From the very beginning, I said, this is not about corporate social responsibility. This is not about philanthropy, but fundamentally, this is where can we leverage the business by doing what we do as a business to advance these broader goals. Audrey Choi is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Morgan Stanley. She had a non-traditional path to working at an investment bank, having worked as a foreign correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. And she also worked in public policy, first for the Clinton administration, and then for Al Gore and even Janet Yellen. When she came to Morgan Stanley, it was to help with leadership development. There, however, she saw a different opportunity, a way of thinking for the climate that all leaders would need in order to truly invest in the future. This was 2008, at the start of the last recession, and she pitched to her bosses the creation of a special investing group with a mission to harness capital markets to protect the environment. Done right, it could, as she put it, create a true flywheel for change. Audrey will talk about what it took to make that leap at the start of the economic downturn and the shift that's made when you begin looking at markets with sustainability in mind. Traditional investing that looks only at the balance sheet is maybe like having a zoom lens on just the numbers page. And ESG is more about having a wide angle lens. She'll also explain the benefit of diverse backgrounds when it comes to tackling topics like sustainability and why it's important for every person to take a leadership role regardless of their position or title. She'll discuss all that and more, but first she'll dig into more about those days before joining Morgan Stanley. I would say, you know, in terms of my career, it is one of those things that in the rear view mirror makes so much more sense than you know looking through the through the windshield on the way i certainly could not have planned it my first career was actually as a journalist i worked for the wall street journal i had the incredible opportunity at a very young age to be a foreign correspondent and bureau chief and investigative journalist for the wall street journal getting to cover some incredible stories including the aftermath of the fall of the berlin wall and german reunification so that was a really incredible experience that let me understand and really be on the front lines of stories as they were unfolding and understanding the the impact of economic dislocation. And it was really actually then that I really understood political economy as an issue of social justice. Because I was able to see as I was talking with, you know, families with displaced workers, with, you know, families who'd been separated and reuniting, you know, what what the personal and sort of um, emotional implications were of various different choices. Eventually, though, I realized that I actually wanted to be more involved in policy. That is as wonderful it was to be able to have a front row courtside seat that I actually kind of wanted to be on the court. And that's when I uh, actually went into, into public policy and I had the incredible opportunity to work for the Clinton administration, first as a White House fellow, and then ultimately stayed uh, in a number of different positions, including working as domestic policy advisor to Vice President Al Gore. And, uh, and then Janet Yellen asked me to be her chief of staff when she was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. So, so it was it was an amazing opportunity. 
And there's still a bit of a journey that comes between when you started at Morgan Stanley, I should say, when you invented this role. Can you talk a little bit about that need that you saw and what those conversations were like? Um, so yeah, as I said, after an incredible period working in public policy at the U.S. government and you know for Janet Yellen at Council of Economic Advisors, I did a whole bunch of different things, working actually for Al Gore as he started writing books, working at an incredible international nonprofit, and then found my way to Morgan Stanley. And my first role at Morgan Stanley was actually helping with leadership development. There was an incredible person at Morgan Stanley who was the chief talent officer, and she asked me to come join the firm, not because I had a traditional human resources background and not because I had a traditional backing, banking background, but frankly, precisely because I didn't, to, to work with her around talent management and leadership development. And very quickly, what I kind of said, well, look, my differential abilities here and the skills or different views that I'm bringing to it is having worked in policy, having worked in journalism, I think that what could really enrich the model of how we think about leadership is really thinking about in that broad ecosystem. How do we also think about the impact that the business that we do is having on communities? How do we think about the impact of our business on the broader ecosystem and the interactions between public policy, reputation, community development, and all of those things should really be a part of how we understand what it is to be a leader in finance, and of course, what it is to be a leader at Morgan Stanley. And what I ended up really pitching was saying, you know, really if we want to be building the best possible leaders for Morgan Stanley, but also for the industry, it really should be about how do we understand all of these things holistically. And actually, the more I thought about that, the more I realized that it really went both ways. It wasn't about just making us better leaders by thinking about these things holistically, but really thinking about where could finance play a distinctive, incredibly important role in some of the, the biggest issues that we were facing where finance could really be a part of harnessing the capital markets to help protect the environment and strengthen um, communities and really drive economic opportunities. And that the way we would be able to do that most significantly was actually by doing it as part of the business. So from the very beginning, I said, this is not about corporate social responsibility. This is not about philanthropy. This is not about reputation building. But fundamentally, this is where can we leverage the business by doing what we do as a business to advance these and to align with these these broader goals. So that's what actually led to the fact that in 2008, I essentially pitched that we could form this thing called the Global Sustainable Finance Group, whose mission would be to harness the capital markets to protect the environment, strengthen communities, and create opportunities. And pretty amazingly, I think that Morgan Stanley, again, in late 2008, actually approved that. And so we announced the formation of the group in early 2009. And again, for any of our listeners who remember what was happening in the world in terms of the financial crisis, that's a pretty extraordinary time, I think, to plant that kind of a flag, a pretty big leap of faith. Well, I think that that's worth kind of digging into a little bit, because not only was it the financial crisis, but also sustainability just wasn't a topic that was really coming to the, the forefront of many discussions, money CEOs, that wasn't their top priority. And, and, you know, I've certainly talked to many folks who say, gosh, you know, even five years ago, this wasn't something that, you know, was uh, on the top of my list. Why do you think, what was maybe the DNA there that came to Morgan Stanley's list first? Were there any sort of traits or things that they were looking for that helped them sort of see the, the potential there? So if you think about the core values of Morgan Stanley, really, it is, you know, it is put the client first, it's lead with exceptional thinking, it's do the right thing and give back. And I think for me, what I what what we really focused on was this combination of leading with exceptional ideas and you know and doing the right thing. That I always felt these are not again these are not separate pillars. 
these really converge. And that sustainable investing was really, I think, the, the, the intersection of that. It's saying, how do we do what we do best? How do we combine that best thinking and putting the client first with our, what are the material and financial impacts of a mega trend like climate change? And in addition to volunteerism, in addition to all of those great things, how do we also bring in you know, the enormous power of, of the capital markets and our financing? When I was in policy, I saw that policy was incredibly important to set the rules of the road, to level the playing field, to provide opportunity, and that the ability of the private sector to have rapid decision-making, to mobilize capital, to you know, really push things through was an incredibly powerful force. And that if you could actually harness that in a sort of virtuous circle, you know, in a, in a flywheel for change, that you could really create lasting change at a much broader scale. So that that's why I was so always focused with Morgan Stanley of saying, you know, this this is not about you know an additional lovely program. This is how do we actually weave this as a horizontal across all of our businesses? How we think about risk, how we think about opportunity, how we think about investment opportunities that takes into account how we drive forward on sustainability and other positive goals. It's easy for us to sort of talk now about sustainability and it's like, oh, this all ladders up. It makes sense. We're doing the best for our clients. But this was brand new. It was a leap. It's a startup. Can you put me in your chair? What are you thinking about every day when you come to work and you're navigating to sort of help set that pace? What are you thinking about and what are you concerned about? Look, you're, look, you're right. I mean, at the time, a lot of people thought that, you know, sustainability was the right thing to do and lovely and worthwhile and probably not part of the purview of business, that they thought it was more, you know, one of the side functions. So in those early years, there was a lot of time that I was spending on really trying to figure out how do we build the business case. Everybody's gut instinct is if you think about those lovely things like environment or social issues, that must mean that you're not being hard-headed about you know, facts and figures and numbers. And so, of course, it's going to be at a discount to return. And so some of the first thing we did was actually focus on, is there a discount to return? You know, and what we found was that, uh, you know, we, we did a whole number of studies in a bunch of different ways. And if you look at investments, sustainable investing strategies compared to traditional investment strategies, when we looked over 15 years, they actually had pretty much the same performance. And the one significant difference was that the sustainable strategies had up to a 20% lower downside volatility. And I've never met many investors or individuals who don't want something with this largely the same return and less downside risk. Really fascinating in 2019 and 2020, we actually saw that the sustainable strategies outperformed the traditional strategies, both in, in bull, bear, and volatile markets. So pretty much in every state of the world, we saw an outperformance in sustainable strategies, again, with lower risk. So, you know, again, in the early years, there was a lot of trying to figure out how could we put together the picket fence of data, of analysis, of polls of investor interest to say, you know, this is increasingly something real, something there's a business case for, something that clients want, and that the, all the trends are increasing. But you're totally right that in the early years, there was there was a high element of, this is our belief, and we're going to now try to find the facts as to whether that's in pressure test it and test ourselves. And you know, with every passing year, it's been more and more people coming and saying, oh, well, of course, this, this seems like the way of the future. And now it, we've really seen the last you know two years that it's just become table stakes. With some of this, you were talking about how, hey, we needed to do this research. Why hadn't anyone asked this question before? You know, so often people just sort of did assume that if you thought about anything beyond sort of traditional financial metrics, 
that that was somehow a distraction or that that was somehow going to water down the rigor of your financial analysis. And, and you know, but look, also, t- you know, to be fair, sustainable investing by another, by many other names, whether that be social responsible investing or, you know, mission-related investing or ESG investing, it's been around for a long time, for centuries, really, and especially initially from faith-based communities who may have wanted to avoid, you know, certain stocks or certain sectors. One of the reasons why it has been able to become so much bigger and so much more mainstream over the past, you know, uh, years has been that there has been more and more focus on how, do, how does this become integral to the investment process. So it's not just, you know, t- take a default investment and then just purge out a few individual stocks or individual sectors, which then may lead to some, you know, some tracking errors, some imbalances and whatnot. I mean, if you think about that old, uh, that old mindset of rigorous investing just looks at the balance sheet and looking at anything else is a distraction, right? Or is somehow blurring your view. I think of it much more saying it's, it's more about, you know, traditional investing that looks only at the balance sheet is maybe like having a zoom lens on just the numbers page, right? And ESG is more about having more of a wide angle lens. So it doesn't mean you're not looking at the, those those core facts. It doesn't mean that you're distracted from them. It just means you're understanding some of the the sound and color and and you know other things you get from looking more widely. What sort of capabilities needed to be built? I mean, a of course we need just the the leap of faith to to try, right? Is the one thing we need. Two, there's this sort of developing mindset shift that's helped along with new research and new information. But to make wider change, there has to be you know other things in place. Were there other sort of capabilities or other skill sets that needed to be built at Morgan Stanley to really support this effort? Well, you know, I think one of the one of the things that I'm most proud of is actually our team. Right, the global sustainable finance team is exactly as you suggest an incredibly diverse group in terms of backgrounds. Right, there are definitely members of our team who were investment bankers or you know capital markets or wealth management before coming into our team. But we also have people who had been working for nonprofits, for sustainability analytics shops, for uh, for government, and so really bringing together that understanding of policy, of environmental issues, of social issues, um, as well as of you know core banking functions. And really bringing those things together is, I think, where kind of that magic happens, right? Because I think what we've really been needing is people who are going to be equally rigorous about the sustainability credentials of an opportunity, as well as the financial risks and opportunities there. And so it's really bringing those worlds together. And like in, in the early years, you know, sometimes it was harder to, uh, to get people who are deeply expert in sustainability who could speak the language of finance and vice versa. And I think now what we're what we've been seeing is that we have had this really exciting generation of new professionals coming into the industry who are like, well, of course we have to integrate ESG into finance and they're really coming to it with a very robust understanding of, you know, both sides of the equation. Given this effort, was there any sort of one trait that you really depended on that you wouldn't have been able to work without? You know, I think for me it was really about this concept of sort of bridge building or, you know, or translation. I've often been the non-traditional candidate, right? Even when I went into journalism for the Wall Street Journal, I was the, you know, the non-journalist major, the non-economist, you know, being suddenly being a financial journalist. When I went into government, oftentimes people were remarked like, oh, you're not a lawyer. Right. You didn't go to public policy school. You're not a lawyer, you know. And then certainly at finance, I was obviously not not the traditional banker. 
And I think in each of those cases, for me, it was always about not seeing that as a deficiency, but more like, well, no, but I, I understand these other things. And so how, you know, how can I help translate across the worlds of public policy and finance or, you know, finance and community development, and then understand how regulators or journalists will look at this all. And so for me, I've always had more of a, a sense of like, let's take the 360 view and sort of the multi-sector view. And then I think that's been one of the things that has really, you know, become more and more part of understanding sustainable investing really fully. How do these environmental or social issues actually impact the bottom line and vice versa is much more about the sort of cross-sector thinking. Yeah, I think that's interesting because uh, you know, more and more uh, we've been hearing about how these solutions for sustainability are going to take new collaborations. Uh, people are going to need to be working with people they never would have worked with before, collaborating with rivals, you know, pre-competitive environments, things like that. Do you think that there's going to be this uh, maybe more wider acceptance of that uh, as we sort of tackle this, that maybe uh, companies look to sort of build out their teams, that they will sort of look more holistically at what people can bring to tackle these? Do you think that will be something that we'll be seeing more of? Absolutely. I think there's there's two different levels that that's going to happen on. One is, as you said, sort of team building, and the other is at the sort of corporate competitive level. On the team building aspect, I think we're absolutely seeing that, that more and more people are looking at teams that really bring together different diverse backgrounds. And I think that ultimately, this concept of a multi-sector leader is very much something that people are really looking for as the kind of the leaders who are going to be able to be the most resilient to to the business conditions of the future. I mean, frankly, look, if you're a CEO today, you've got to have a deep understanding not only of finance and operations, but frankly, also of, you know, of public policy and of environmental issues. You need to understand climate change to understand business continuity and risk management, frankly. But I also think at the corporate level, I think that we're going to have to start thinking differently about innovation. Innovation, I think often in a corporate context, used to be thought about as this sense of, if I can discover it and keep it to myself and monetize it as long as possible before other people also discover it, then that's the competitive advantage. But when we're, we're tackling issues like climate change, we can't afford to regard sustainability innovation as something that we need to keep. We really have to actually say, if we want to move the needle we should be sharing this as widely as possible. And similarly, when you get to things like saying, well, how are we going to you know, transform our economy so that we get to a net zero economy that we're able to comply with you know, the goals of the Paris uh, Accords, et cetera, we can't get there alone. No one of us can get there alone. So Morgan Stanley, we were the first of the US um, major banks to commit to net zero by 2050 across our business operations. We did that last September. And so we were super excited to be the first to, to declare that. We were super excited that others have made, you know, made that uh, same or similar pledges. And we think that this is absolutely an area where we should all be collaborating on what are the metrics, what are the standards, what are the reporting mechanisms so that we can actually provide to investors and to clients a set of comparable figures that are transparent and help us really march together. It doesn't help if everyone says, I'm going to define everything my own way and march to the tune of my own drummer and so then no one can actually compare. Right? So that's one of the reasons why we've been very focused on actually being a part of and encouraging others to be part of some of these industry-wide alliances, whether that be the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, TCFD, uh, you know, the, the, the Banking Alliance for Net Zero. So we've been, we've been really focused on, on sharing rather than competing in that, in that kind of innovation. 
you talk a lot about capital S sustainability, uh, <laughs> right? And that uh, uh, the most important thing, if you want to make changes to be as a business is to make sure you're solvent, something that uh, is simple, wise and sound and useful and important. Can you talk a little bit about why these ideas need to be sort of embedded also into how they make profits? I think that gets lost, I think, as people sort of try to figure out how they're going to tackle these issues, because as you said before, sometimes these become an extra, a nice to have as opposed to a must to have. Um, why does it have to be embedded in the profits? So if you think about the, the true definition of sustainability, right, it's something that you are able to continue doing, right? And that's a process that sort of sustains itself, renews itself and perpetuates itself. And so certainly from a business perspective, if you want to be doing this as a business activity, it has to make sense as a business, which means it has to be profitable, has to make sense for the shareholders. Otherwise, you need to account for it as philanthropy or marketing or, or some other discretionary expenditure. I feel I feel like the, the most powerful tool that business has is the engine of the business itself. And from an impact perspective, you have to think about, you know, how do we really make that flywheel go? And so, yeah, so when I, when I talk about sort of the capital S and sustainability, I mean, right, it has to be financially sustainable as well as environmentally sustainable and socially sustainable. And I think that what's great now about where we've been able to come in terms of the, the copious evidence that people have seen now about how environmental um, considerations actually are material to financial outcomes, how social implications are actually materials for financial outcomes. It's helped us understand that they really do work together, right? I mean, just to, just to give you a couple of quick examples, um, you know, Morgan Stanley Research looked at gender equity. Of course, everyone thinks gender equity is important. It's great. It's valuable. And it pays, right? So when, when, the, when, when you do the research, you find that the high gender equity companies actually outperform the low gender equity companies in terms of ROE, in terms of price volatility, in terms of stock performance. And so then it then becomes a completely different conversation to say, well, why would you not choose those stocks that have lower volatility, higher ROE, higher profitability, higher innovation, higher retention rates, all the rest. And so I think that, you know, increasingly we just, I think from an impact perspective, we have to think about sustainability as something across our business because that's how we're actually going to drive the most impact. And then from a profitability perspective, I think that you know the evidence is increasingly clear that, that thinking about these things actually can lower risk and or enhance return. Speaking of Morgan Stanley research, you guys had your uh, 2020 Morgan Stanley Sustainable Reality Report. Can you talk through any findings there that maybe just uh, bubbled up to you as surprising or really interesting, anything that really uh, struck you? So many people assume that sustainable invest or used to assume that sustainable investing meant to discount your returns. And what we saw is that that really has not been the case. In fact, that there has been an O outperformance in 2019 and 2020 to those sustainability stocks. Also, I think it's important to know, given what an unusual year, obviously, 2020 was, the outperformance in 2020 was not merely a fossil fuel issue, right? It was not merely that because we all sat at home that, you know, that energy stocks suffered and therefore that's the only reason that sustainable investing outperformed. Because sustainable investing also outperformed in 2019, right? When you had these roaring bull markets. And so I think that what it really shows is the issue of converting over time, really re retooling our economy towards more sustainable methods of production, of consumption. All of that is actually an enormous growth opportunity. Whether that be infrastructure investment, healthcare investment, education investment, I know different energy sources, um, transportation innovations, all of those things is an enormous opportunity for growth. The other thing, though, is when you look at the dispersion of results, 
what you see is if you look just at sustainable investment strategies, some outperform the mean, some underperform the mean, and the same for traditional investing, right? And so I think that there's really, you know, as I've always said, there's nothing magical about adding the word sustainable into an investment strategy that, you know, helps you defy the laws of physics or, you know, or, or of economics, right? But what it does do is it, it gives you more data. And, you know, I've never met someone who says, I don't want more potentially relevant data to make my decisions. Right? And so I think that the sustainable realities is really help people see that, that there is nothing magically bad or magically good about sustainability per se. It's about saying, if we are rigorous about this, and if we really understand this and look at the data in a, you know, in, in a thoroughgoing way, this is going to give us better information to understand what, what impact we're having on the world and that that actually does have impact materially on our financials. What other mechanisms does uh, Morgan Stanley have to increase uh, sustainable investing? What opportunities have they created for people to kind of create these incentives or these, these routes and paths? So in 2012, we actually launched um, the Investing with Impact product platform at, at our wealth management division, which is more than 120 different sustainable investing products that we diligenced as a financial product and for their sustainability you know, credentials and that we, that we had on the platform. So you could actually, as an investor, say, okay, I'm interested in, you know, in values alignment or ESG integration or specific thematic investing, and I want that to be in stock index or in a you know, private equity vehicle, and those were actually all sort of arranged so that you could actually be able to find those products pretty easily. We've since grown that uh, portfolio tremendously, and we're now seeing that the vast majority of our financial advisors are using some of those products, um, and many of them are using uh, you know, multiple of those products. Um, but we've also said, you know, we also need to make it so that sustainable investing is not only more readily available as a product, but it's also more accessible for investors at any level. So if you go back when we when we first introduced our um, our sort of model portfolios, right, where you could sort of one click choose a portfolio, the initial investments and, and this was considered low at the time for a sustainable investing portfolio. The minimum investments were I think four hundred thousand and six hundred thousand dollars for our all equity and for our balanced options. Fast forward to today, you can now do it for a minimum investment of um, of five thousand dollars that you can actually choose a diversified portfolio that is focused on sustainability or climate change or gender equity through through our online platforms. We've also enabled investors to also do what they've increasingly told us they want to do, which is really focus on specific issues. So not just generally good stuff sustainability, but you know, but climate action, water quality, education, healthcare, and one example is um, you know two years ago, Morgan Stanley um, again we sort of planted a flag that we had a very significant commitment to working with all of our clients across the entire value chain around reducing plastic waste. We've also actually been very excited to work with the WEF on that, to the GPAP in terms of uh, plastic action. But we said not only that, that Morgan Stanley was committing to do everything we could to prevent, reduce, remove 50 million tons of plastic waste from rivers, oceans, and landfills, but we also wanted to make it easier for investors to invest alongside that. So we actually developed, again, low dollar minimum portfolios, $10,000 minimum investment, where you could align your investments with promoting marine health and reducing plastic waste innovation. And when we put those onto the platform, those ended up being some of the fastest growing products we've ever put on the on the wealth management platform. Um, and it just is another sign that of this increasing um, trend of investors really wanting to you know align their money with their values because they believe it's the right thing and because they believe it's actually a growth opportunity. If everything goes right and well, and I'm going to ask you to define what right and well looks like, but what does the world look like and, and what is what is well? Oh, 
That's a long wish list. Look, I think, uh, so let's, let's start more narrowly, right? In the world of investing, that's probably easier, right? In the world of investing, I do believe that, frankly, well before 2030, but certainly by 2030, ESG integration is going to be like fluoride in the water, right? I think that it will be beyond table stakes that pretty much any investor or asset manager of quality is going to have full integration of ESG metrics into their fundamental analysis. Now, there will then be lots of differentiation on, you know, on flavor and style and what you choose to emphasize versus what I choose to emphasize. And I'm sure there will be someone out there who's going to run a contra fund that will say, I am willfully ignoring all ESG data. And, you know, maybe there's some years that they, that goes well. But I think that, you know, that, I think that's easy. And look, I've been saying this for probably over a decade that at some point, and I think that that some point is really pretty much in the next you know, couple of years, that ESG is absolutely going to be table stakes. It's going to be table stakes just to be considered a credible investor. And it's going to be table stakes because frankly, central banks and financial regulators are going to require it. I think we will also... I mean, again, and your 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 caveat there of if all goes right and well, <laughs> we should all be so lucky in all of life that if all goes right and well. But look, if all goes right and well, I think that you will have seen a very material shift in both attitudes and as a result, um, corporate strategies and investment strategies at understanding the criticality of sustainability. And I think that that will be in a number of things, right? I think that circular the circular economy will be an enormous part of that, right? People have to understand that we can't do the, you know, create, use, throw away model anymore. And that innovation and salvation is going to come from figuring out how to make that line into a circle. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be that we address all the many tragedies of the commons that we have, right? That we don't say, well, because we're not currently charged for carbon emissions or for, you know, effluents or certain other things that therefore we're not putting it into the, into our accounting. We're going to have to have a much more holistic accounting. And I, I, I use accounting both sort of, you know, technically and figuratively or, you know, accounting of, of, our, of our full impact, you know, and then look, I think then, uh, then there's a whole set of things that probably go well beyond the realms of our, of, of our time or this podcast in terms of what we have to do in, in terms of social justice and inclusion. Right, because frankly, until we address some of the fundamental structural systemic issues around social justice, which among other things has implications for access to capital, but has many other more immediate implications than that, until we address that, we are not getting to anything that you can begin to describe as things going right and well. The disparity that we have today globally as well as in the United States is staggering, right? Unfortunately, right, the communities of color especially low-income communities of color, have just are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change. I mean, literally poor communities that have been redlined in terms of financing are literally hotter in the summer than neighboring rich communities. There's more air pollution. There's more susceptibility to respiratory disease. There's worse access to, to healthcare. There's, you know, three to six times the amount of ER admissions for asthma from poor communities because of the poor quality housing stock. The incredible compounding of problems because of a lot of the structural and systemic issues we have is absolutely something that we cannot ignore. And there is no way that we get to a, you know, a more prosperous, more healthy globe for everyone if we ignore those significant issues of inequity and, and social justice. 
you, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the things that you, you, you feel are going to probably be in place by 2030, at least on the investing side. We, we probably won't be fixing most of our, the social issues we have in the next 10 years, sadly. But at least on the investing side, you know, we, we mentioned that, hey, if everything goes right and well, these will happen. Um, what could hold that back? What, what is the, what's the, the little fly in the ointment in, in your mind? Maybe I'm crazy optimistic or crazy Pollyanna, but I think that, you know, in, in a good sense, the horse is kind of left for the barn in terms of ESG being material. I think having said that, look, a lot has to happen to actually implement the changes that are needed to address climate change, right? We we are so far gone at this, you know, at this point in terms of the path to to increasing temperatures and all the negative effects um, with climate change. We could probably take the most radical actions you could think of today, and we would still be limiting ourselves, be limiting the amount of damage, but not erasing it on a international, national, you know, state and local level. There are countless decisions that can either accelerate or delay getting to that, that to your view of the world being right and well, right? Um, literally, I mean, pretty much, you know, billions of consumer decisions on a day-to-day basis, you know, millions of corporate decisions around sourcing, around packaging, around distribution, around, you know, municipal decisions in terms of waste management and recycling, you know, federal decisions in every nation around regulations, around, you know, whether there's going to be a price on carbon, either implicit or explicit, and, you know, in, in ways that are truly accountable. All of these things have to come together for us to have a world in which we're able to really get to that vision of sort of right and well. <laughs> I only have a few more minutes with you. I have two quick questions, but I think we can get through them very quickly. One is, what's a book that you recommend and why? Oh, gosh, there are so many. Um, let me give you two that happen to be just like sitting on my my desk behind me, and they're completely different. One is Al Gore's book on on climate change, you know, The Inconvenient Truth. He has a he has a version that is entirely consumable for kind of anyone to, to understand quick bits about climate change, why, it, you know, how it's affecting us and things that we can do. And, you know, the other, which is not a sustainability book per se, but um, I think gets to the issue of really just kind of understanding, I don't know, a lot of things in life and history is um, uh, Year of Impossible Goodbyes, which in full disclosure was written by my mother, Sikno Choi. And it's, uh, you know, about her uh, her experience growing up in uh, in North Korea during the Japanese occupation, World War II. And, uh, you know, and it all ended up having a, a wonderful, happy ending that, uh, you know, I've basically been super fortunate to essentially live the American dream of kid of immigrants and getting to have all the opportunities afforded by this country. For me, obviously, it's part of the very personal family story, but this has been a year that, uh, or a year, a decade, I know, that, that I've thought a lot about, um, you know, about that promise of the American dream, which is that anything is possible if you work hard, try hard, and, you know, study hard, et cetera. I think that when, especially when you ask about that vision of, you know, if the world is right and well, like if the version is right and well, what has been characterized as the American dream should be the every country dream that any child born anywhere in the world has the opportunity to grow up feeling genuinely like the sky's the limit. And we just have so much work to do to, to have that be true for, for children today. You've said that uh, uh, anybody can make an impact no matter what their role. And I think this is helpful with some of the things we've talked about with having diverse teams and why that's needed for sustainability. But but sometimes it's I think it's hard for people to understand that they have an impact, that they can be a leader, even if they've not been dubbed a leader, right? Um, why is that such an easy thing to lose, lose sight of? Yeah, look, I mean, I, th- I think everyone gets very focused on sort of what's on their to-do list 
for the day and what um, what they are quote expected to do by whoever they work for, right? And I think that you know what people have to remember is if the only thing you're ever doing at work is doing what you're told to do. First of all, you're not adding as much value as you could be, right? And also, whatever you're being told to do is probably what people have always done and always expected out of that role, right? And that where you know what your value is is what do you bring? To, what do you what what new perspective do you bring? And how can you think about doing something different? And so again, which is not to say disobey your bosses, right? But I'm saying you know, how can we we think innovatively about what? How can we do this even better? Um, and I, you're right. I mean, I I totally believe that, especially with regards to sustainability or impact of any kind, it's not just the people who have that in their title who should be doing it. Because if only those of us who have it in their t- our title do it, we'll never get anywhere, right? Everything that I do, I only you know have been able to succeed in because I've been able to enlist my, my colleagues and partners. Frankly, in climate change, one of my greatest partners is the chief risk officer, right, of, of the firm, right? He has been an incredible convert student and leader now in this. And I wouldn't have been able to do any of the things that, that I've done around, on behalf of the firm around net zero and climate change if it hadn't been in partnership with all of our business leaders. Any change worth making requires a lot of people. And uh, you, you got to really be, be building those bridges, enlisting others. And so that's why I just think you know, if anyone sort of says, I want to have impact, but that's not in my job description, they should be a little bit more creative about how they define their job description. That was Audrey Choi. Before we go, don't forget to check out this new podcast on artificial intelligence featuring one of my colleagues at the World Economic Forum, Mark Kane. Is artificial intelligence your friend or is it your foe? I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. This podcast surveys the global landscape for inspiration and lessons in developing responsible, trustworthy artificial intelligence. From prominent politicians to investigative journalists, from award-winning academics to nationally recognized authors, we interview key players across the globe to bring you the latest developments and most dynamic perspectives on artificial intelligence today. We release new episodes each week, so please subscribe and find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other major platforms. That was Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum's Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Check out his podcast and this one on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. That's it for me. My thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy and Gareth Nolan for all of their work on Meet the Leader. My thanks also go out to Jerry Johansson for all his work on the editing of this episode. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow us online on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.